Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined by my co-host, Saima, and uh, like usual, the rest of our panel. Uh, say hello, everybody. Hey, y'all. Hey, everybody. Uh, you'll notice um, I, I did a little bit of a different intro this time. Uh, that's right, Saima. I'm, I'm officially moving her up to co-host status. So. Yay! What up, wheelies? Um, yeah, that's right. Uh, when, when I first conceived of this podcast, I, I actually had asked Saima to be my co-host at the time and Saima was busy and, and a little nervous about the whole idea and, and, and said, maybe I'll join you a little later to, to do some episodes and we'll see what happens. And, uh, well, we saw what happened. She joined and she fit right in just like I knew she would. And I, I'm just bringing her right up to co-host status. Just just like that so yay this is what it was meant to be from the start and it, it's what is now but like i like to think and the co-panelists have also agreed because i didn't do it we got everyone yay <laughs> <laughs> so joining us from the panel today we've got dw there's greg hello there david read alert uh samaria happy first day of spring everybody and there's siobhan hey everybody all right we're just gonna pick up where we left off last episode uh which we were doing a deep dive on our main characters um and i think uh we, we got through lan um nynaeve Egwene, and rand last episode so i think this episode we're gonna we're gonna start off with moiraine because uh, she's she's kind of uh, kind of our main character in in the first season for most of the first season, so uh, I think that's a good starting end point. Uh, she's a bit of a big, bit of a big deal, just a little bit of a big deal. Uh, played by Rosamund Pike, um, who we all know from a lot of things. Let's let, let's see what we can name that we know Rosamund Pike from. Gone Girl, Pride and Prejudice, uh, the Marie Curie movie. Um, and, and my favorite thing that she was in was, uh, the, the music video for Voodoo in the, in my blood by Massive Attack. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. I know yeah. her from this series called Wheel of Time. <laughs> <laughs> I must admit that's me too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we, we all are well aware of Rosamund Pike. She's, uh, an amazing actor and, uh, Quite, quite the get for this series. Um, and she is playing Moiraine Damadred of House Damadred of Kyrian. Oh my God. She was also in the remake of Watership Down. Oh, sorry. I had a flashback to my childhood. <laughs> I try to forget Watership Down as much as possible. <laughs> Maybe we'll touch on that in the mental health episode that we've got coming up. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> traumatic experience for everyone involved. Right. Uh, Maureen is also an Aes Sedai of the Blue Aja, um, and one of only two that we know of with direct knowledge of the rebirth of the Dragon Reborn. Uh, what else do we know about Maureen? She's been carrying a secret for 20 years. Um, we know that she's an incredible actor. Uh, even the character Maureen is an incredible actor, because not only has she been carrying this secret, she's been carrying the secret of her relationship with Swan. And nobody even suspects like the, the, 
yeah, thinks that they're enemies. Yeah. The right. read is that they don't like each other and that she's always been on the verge of being disciplined by the Amon seat. And yeah, Swan doesn't good. like her. She's got a funny way of showing it. <laughs> uh, seemingly good at uh, not falling prey to the White Cloak Inquisitors. Again, mm-hmm. good actor. She's able to hide in plain sight. I also get the vibe from all of the Aes Sedai we met that she is not your average Aes Sedai. She kind of stands out from them in in different ways. Is not like a uh, would not be used as the stereotype for them. Right. She's she's uh, more of a spy than anything. She is a a, a woman of intrigue. Well, and that could be because she's spent more time outside of the tower than they have, so she's kind of imprinted by the real world more so than most of them have been. True, but is that also, is that egg or chicken? Because is she different for them? Or is she different because she's been outside, or is she outside because she's different? Like, which has informed the other more? Oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've always found that in... um Groups of people that are very isolated, that even small conflicts and dramas can be blown up to be much more important than they really are. And with all of the various Ajas um, jockeying for power and position in the tower, the fact that she's, that Moraine is not a part of that, probably just the fact that she's she she is interacting with the outside world she's not constantly submerged in the in the the political the politicking that's going on in the tower which seems that to be probably a loss helps to, to them. keep her focused yeah we see her interacting with the other aja both blue well not aja the other i said i both in the blue aja and outside of it and it seems that moraine could be a very good politician if she wanted to um and her actively taking herself out of that sphere is seen as a loss, um, especially to the Blue Aja. They want her to stay put. They want her to find a way to ally herself with Swan, as far as they know. Um, they, you know, they probably would like her to be in line to be, you know, the seat um, if anything ever happens to Swan prematurely. Um, and Moraine turning them down, working overtime to take herself out of that. Um, yes, she has a different assignment that they don't know about. But I think even if they did, they'd be like, well, why can't you come home? And, you know, definitely how, you know, the Reds treat her. Definitely, you know, they seem to be hyper aware of, you know, the power and the influence that she has or could have if she ever wanted to. And how often is that person that would be a good leader is the person who doesn't want to be a leader, which is one of the factors that makes them probably going to be a good leader. Well, stop it with the chicken and egg thing, DW. Uh, (laughs) I was going to say that, you know, her secret probably informs that a little bit, because if you had this secret that was so super important to the universe and the world overall, you would really stop caring about the petty little things in life. And there's a lot of uh, sci-fi and superhero tropes where that's the case, where you get this um, 
first contact situation is what changes the world because all of a sudden it doesn't matter our little problems here because the universe is so much bigger. And I think that might be part of what's going on with her is her issue, the thing she's dealing with is way bigger than their stupid little petty squabbles over politics. So she's thinking, I'm one of only two people that knows that the dragon has been reborn, and that means that Tarman Gaidon is coming and making sure that the dragon makes it there and saves us is more important than any other thing I could possibly be doing. Yeah. I think she does right. just yeah, it enough does, it doesn't to really, get by. Yeah, because it doesn't really seem to matter who's on the seat when, you know. It does, does it really matter who's running things when everything's going to hell? Well, and, and as we're speaking about somebody who doesn't want to be at the tower, being on the seat would like be stuck in the tower. It doesn't, I, I think that would be her nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that brings up a question, which is only tangentially re- related to, to Moraine. It brings up a question about Swan. She, so when they, they had the first, um, the vision first happened 20 years ago that the dragon had just been born. Neither one of them were as senior as they are now. And Swan, if I understand correctly, was not the Amaron seat at that time. So I'm kind of curious now about the machinations that went on for Swan to get in that position of authority so that she could make sure Moraine was able to go out in the world and look for the dragon. So um, Mm. at the time, uh, Swan and Moraine were both just accepted. They had not been raised to full Aes Sedai as of yet. Uh, They were raised to full Aes Sedai shortly after, like within weeks. Um, And uh, as far as Swan becoming uh, Amerlin, um, over that period of time uh, from when the dragon was born until... Uh, Swan was raised, which was, uh, uh, I don't recall exactly, but it was several years back uh, from the point we currently are. Um, three different Amerlins died in office. So they decided to go. Foul with play? Sp- what was that? Foul play? More chicken and egg uh, talk. Chicken egg, yeah. Um, uh, so because of the three Amerlins dying in quick quick succession, they decided to go with a much younger candidate for Amerlin so that they would not have to replace an Amerlin again anytime soon. Again, um, and, chicken and, egg. Yeah, were, and, these, and, were these older Amerlins dying because there was some sort of machination behind the scenes in order to get somebody like Swan in place in order to get Moraine where she needs to be. Hmm. Interesting question. (laughs) Even if there was no. The hosts clam up their faces and just (laughs) look at the camera. (laughs) But even if there wasn't any foul play, you have a situation where, um, you know, you have lots of people who are going to be jockeying for that seat when it becomes available, and yet Swan got it, and it was yeah, important they're take, they're, that she be in it. They're taking advantage of the situation, but did they create the situation as well? Oh, interesting thought. 
Yeah, um, I can say that the reason that Swan was kind of uh, voted into that role is, as we know from history, more blues get raised to the Amerlin than any other Aja, probably because they are so good at political machinations. Um, and well, it's, at- it's a little like how, you know, members of the KGB were more than likely to become the premier of Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and uh, at that time, Swan was uh, actually a sitter for the Blue Aja. I believe she was the youngest sitter for the Blue Aja, but because she was the youngest, I believe that is why she was the one put forth for Amerlin at the time. And that's quite a bit far afield from where we started with Moraine. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so we, that, that, we that went into of, we went into poultry for a little while there. Yeah, so. uh, as I have been known to do. Um, <laughs> Paltry decisions will not go unnoticed. Yeah. So we talked about uh, Moraine's relationship with Swan. Let's talk about her other major relationship, that with Lan. Um, we talked about it from Lan's point of view last episode, but I think we need to to examine it from Moraine's point of view as well. Um, so well, any, the any first thoughts? thought I have on it is that it is it changing? Because how often did she, other than for time with Swan, block the connection? But now it seems to be that she was has had reason to block the connection and not let Lan help her out with things. Is that a change? Is that something that's happened before? Is that like, it feels like it's a change. Um, as far as uh, blocking him out, um, anytime either of them maybe had uh, um, intimate relations with, with someone else, uh, they would tend to block the you know, block what's going on, but uh, beyond that, for for most of the time, they're going to be connected. Yeah, these no, metaf- I, but now she's blocked him for a different reason that was not yeah. about intimacy, and that that seems like maybe a first time. Yeah, that that's a good point. Um, and and how we you know we we saw how he reacted to that block. He kind of like lost his cool pretty quickly took it yeah, quite personally I, yeah I, I very much got the impression that that was a first yeah yeah and i read that as now the relationship of her um duty and her mission has changed it's not just finding the dragon at this point now the dragon has been found even if she doesn't know which one of them it is and so that mission kind of drastically changed for her and yeah. so the the reasons for her doing things kind of changed. And now, now she's doing things that she would never have thought of before. Right. And the fact that she blocked him, that could show something, you know, that could show that she doesn't completely trust him. Uh, as far as this is concerned, like would his counsel be opposite of what she feels needs to be done? Uh, and she's just sort of blocked him just to go do what she needs to do with the dragon uh, without Lan's uh, opinion sort of interfering. So I think so his I- predictability plays into that, though. He seems to be a very True. predictable character, and I think she's predicting that he's going to act one way and doesn't want that to happen, so she's blocking him out so that he doesn't understand what's going on initially. Right. So- so I got the very strong impression that she fully expected to die there in the eye of the world, that the, the struggle between 
the dragon and um what's his gob? The dark one. The, the dark, dark one. <laughs> um was was you know, several times they say anybody else who's there will be, you know, caught between two powerful forces will not survive. So my read on why she blocked Lan was so that Lan couldn't follow, the rest of the the Two Rivers crew couldn't follow, um, so that she could save them. She needed to be there to guide the dragon. The dragon needed to be there for the fight. She was trying to... Um, it was a it was a self sacrificing move. She figured she was going to die anyway. Let's save as many of the other people as I can. Right, and also particularly with Lan uh, to avoid him having the same going through the same thing that uh, his friend did when his mm-hmm. eyes died. Stepin. Yeah, Stepan. So we have um, the scene with Moraine and Lan the night before, right? So when she says, "You know, go see your people," and. She seems really reflective, you know, and a little bit apologetic because she says to him, you know, that you've given up so much of your life for my mission. And he said, you know, he says something like, I had nothing before you. And he, he's almost seeing like, why, why is she being, she's not normally like this, reflecting on the past. So I think as Siobhan says, it's, it's the fact that she's thinking, I have to be there with whoever's going to be the dragon. And whoever's not the dragon is going to die. So I'm going to die. Like she's decided that's going to happen. But she doesn't want to take her warder into that as well. Right. And then if you remember back to the scene with Maureen and Alana, uh, when they're in her bedroom, and Maureen says something about, I've read somewhere about releasing the bond. And Alana says, no, sister, don't do that. Like, why would you think like that? And I feel like in the show, they're already peppering in these instances where Maureen's already thinking, when I die, because she's thinking, I'm going to die at the eye of the world because that's my mission. That's what I'm going to do. But when I die, what's, this, what's the effect going to be on Lan? How can I lessen that? And right. I, it's an interesting thing that Greg just said. I didn't think about the fact that does Moraine think masking the bond will lessen the grief? I had just assumed that she masked the bond because she doesn't want him to follow her and he will understand. He will understand mm-hmm. that. Right? I'm being told to stay. This is my role in this, in this whole scenario. But that's an interesting angle that I hadn't thought about that they might be developing for the show. Did she think masking it could also lessen, he wouldn't go full on Stepin? Right. Well, I mean, showing what happened with Alana and Stepin just shows the effect of it. And he, he, was, he was really affected by what happened to Stepin. And she noticed that. She definitely noticed how much, uh, how how much Alana's death affected Stepan, and what Stepan went through, and what you know, th- therefore what uh, what Lan was going through as a friend. So, yeah, I, I I get the idea that that's that's one of the things she wanted to do is if she's going to die. You know, let's not be connected when that happens because we saw what it did to Stepan, and she doesn't want that to happen to Lan. Except now it's sort of kind of happening, except for they're both alive. Yeah, I was going to say, like, you see the moment of Lana's death. You see Stepan in the field. Just, it's like something hit him. Yeah. So Alana is the one who survives. It's Karene. Sorry. Oh, Karene. Sorry. Yes. Too many eyes to die. You don't know the half of it. (laughs) 
<laughs> they are you condensing <laughs> for, for this show. There are literally hundreds of, of named Aes Sedai in the books. And you know how we were saying earlier about this, the, the number of S's in this group? When it comes to S's with an Aes Sedai S's in the books, oh my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily there's no black Aes Sedai, so we don't have to add that number to our story at all. You mean no black Aja? No black Aja. Uh, Aja, yes. Um, so the the discussion about uh, um, Lan and Moraine and why she cut off that bond. Um, I wonder if part of it might not be she sees how close he's getting with Nynaeve and doesn't trust that he won't betray them to Nynaeve and the rest of the group. Knowing that they would want to come along if she's taking Rand to the eye of the world. Possibly. I mean, they, they, that was their first reaction is like, oh, they're gone. We got to go get them. We got to go, you know. So she knows that's going to happen. I think that's, that's pretty much a given that those, you know, two rivers five are going to really stick together. Yeah. I think she, I think she thought he would. She wanted to save him, and she also was counting on him to keep them all back because she's got the one that she needs. She's got the one that may die, but the one that will do what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, so uh, Moraine's relationship, not just with Lan and, and with uh, um, Swan, uh, what do we think about just kind of her relationship with, with the rest of people in general? Um, how much, how much of that is real? I feel like she keeps everybody kind She said she likes Nynaeve. She's very brusque with people. Like she, she, possibly because of a lifetime of keeping secrets, she doesn't explain herself. She just says, okay, this is what we're doing. Yeah, I feel like Maybe. that's, that might be a result of um, her, of how she grew up. So she's also from a noble house. And so, you know, she might have been raised with the idea, like, I don't have to explain myself to people, you know, I, you know, I am established. I, you know, I have the information I need. You have all the information you need that I see fit that you need. And I'm going to go ahead and do what I have to do. And you can either come along, which you will, um, or not, which if that suits my purposes, then that's fine too. Like we saw with Matt. Um, also, I just think she might be introverted. She just might not be faced by people much and not, you know, need, you know, a lot of people around her to, you know, make her feel, you know, settled and grounded and emotionally fulfilled. You know, she has Lan, she has Swan, and that's pretty much what she, all she needs in life. And she's okay with that. And so, you know, she's, she can deal with other people, you know, she's quite literally trained to, she's a very good, um, blue as well. But, you know, I feel like if left to her own devices, which she absolutely makes sure that she is, you know, to the fullest extent possible, um, she's just not going to, you know, be bothered with people. I just, I just keep remembering her interaction with the ferryman. You're not a woman who hears no very often, are you? <laughs> and she's like, I am not. I'm like, yeah, he's got your number. 
But her conversation with Alana is significantly different when they have it in her bedroom. It's really like a, a sisters on a sleepover type conversation. And even to a certain extent with Leandrin, she kind of has a different conversation with Leandrin than she does with everybody else. Those two, she doesn't keep at arm's length and land. She doesn't keep at arm's length. So I think she's kind of got an inner circle that she can feels like she can talk to either because she knows exactly how they're going to take things or because she known them for very long and trust them. Or could it be possible that none of those are her, her true self that she mm-hmm. puts on an act for everyone? No, that's like of course possible. to everyone. Certainly. And that's I think her, some that's of her that, job. I think some of that, as I mentioned, is, is her trying to keep people at arm's length. Because she believes that there is a goal in her life. And as we've talked about, I think Simon was the one saying that she's like convinced that she's going to die when she goes on this mission. You kind of have to keep focused on the one thing and keep to your mission if that's the thing. And I'm sorry, I do like you, but I need to keep you at arm's length because I have to do this and I can't get distracted by other entanglements or concerns for other people. Good point. So kind of a, I'm, I'm going to die. So I don't want to entangle myself in anything that's going to feel bad when that happens. Feel bad or possibly distract her from the mission. Mm Mm-hmm cause her to possibly uh, hedge her bets at a moment that she needs to be all in. Oh, interesting. Yeah. She's, she seems very mission driven. She has spent 20 years of her life just, yeah, you know, completely focused on this. Right. The only thing that matters is the mission is getting things done. And you know, I, I don't think she takes other people's feelings into consideration much, with the possible exception of Lan and Swan. But I think with Swan, it's like Swan knows what she's got to do, also. So, yeah. and it's it, it's interesting that you mentioned those are the two people that she shows herself to the most. Those are the only other two people who know about the mission. Yeah. Right. Everything else is probably an act. Uh, there may be some feelings in there, but I don't think she's a hard on her sleeve kind of person. She plays everything close to the vest and shows people what they want to see or what she needs them to see. I was interested with what David said about the scene between Maureen and Alana and describing it like a you know sister sleepover. So just to get other perspectives from the panel. What did you make of that interaction? Like what Maureen actually says to Alana and what Alana says to Maureen? If you remember it in as much detail. Yeah, I need to rewatch it, I think. <laughs> so they're obviously comfortable with each other and they it's it's very clear that they have this shared history and affection for each other. But even there, Maureen's not being she's not revealing a lot about what's going on. You know, Elena says things and Moraine never directly addresses. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like Alana is being more open and honest about what's going on. And Moraine is again, playing it up. And that might uh, show the difference between the greens and the blues also. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Green, the greens, greens are, are just very direct. They're the battle. You know? Yeah. Yeah. There's, you you don't know, have time for subterfuge when you just got to throw a fireball. 
<laughs> I, I would be really curious to see other blue Ajas and how they interact. Well, the only one we've seen so far is Swan, so. Not quite. Actually, like really interacting with oh, the Moraine. Yeah. This is seen oh. with Mygan. So yeah. Mygan, who seems to be, he was a sitter and is telling Moraine, directing Moraine. So maybe, you know. Her boss. <laughs> yeah. She, she's not just a sitter. She's uh, the one currently in charge of the Blue Aja. If I yeah, I wasn't sure if I could say that. Right. So yeah, head of the Blue Aja. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that's a big secret to be revealing. Yeah. So even in that interaction with Megan and Moraine, even Megan comments on this on Moraine's secretiveness. So she's like, not only is she blue, really good at being blue, she's like super blue in her secretiveness, right? Indigo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> none, none more blue. <laughs> so I wanted to come back around uh, to something. Samaria said, uh, which was that she possibly had uh, noble birth and noble training. Um, what 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 knowledge do we have that seems to indicate that? And and how do we think that that affects her her person and and what we see in Maureen? Well, she knows how to make an entrance. We know that she uh, she knows how to command a room. And she is very used to being obeyed. Right. I would also say that her her words to the white uh, white cloaks wouldn't have been as solid if she didn't have the knowledge and backing. If, if to she carry didn't off have that. The, didn't have the truth behind. Yeah. It. Yeah. Right. I, I think that 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 training had to be there because she not only was able to say that she was, but she was able to carry herself as if she was, which is not something with, that would go against the lie. Like she, it wouldn't, it wouldn't and, ruin her oath. And and if we she, remember correctly, her words were, she was a lady from a fallen house. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that's, but I believe that she had to have carried herself in such a way that those words rang true. Yes. The other thing is uh, we've mentioned before how she greets Loyal the first time they talk with one another. It's very formal. Mm-hmm. And that's something that may have come from her. Um, training. Yeah. yeah. Could have come from the White Tower, could have come from her noble background. I feel like Leandrin has alluded to it at least once um, about Moraine's background. Um, or it or at least I have a vague memory of it being brought up in passing. And I mean, I could have just been running away with something, but it made sense I, to me. No, I, I think you're correct. There was mm-hmm. definitely a reference to kind of a, a you're, you were born with a silver spoon kind of right. thing. Yeah. I do remember that as well. And then in the tower, um, in the hall of the tower, Swan comments when she's, when she's, you know, acting that she doesn't get on with Maureen. She makes a reference to Lady Maureen Damadred and there's a... <gasps> from the rest of the sitters as if that's not something that we should normally be acknowledged. Yeah. She does a little speech that very much comes across as you think, you think you're too good to be disciplined. Not here. You're not. <laughs> and all the more powerful because knowing Swan's background as we do, 
you know, and then she's she's talking to this lady, lady who, you know, thinks herself all hoity-toity. Well, let me just bring you down a peg or two. Right. It also it also had kind of that feel of uh, for those of us who have middle names that our parents only used when we were in trouble. I'm using your full name just so you know how in trouble you are, young lady. <laughs> and everything just go away and it, it seems like that's the same sort of thing that happens in in the white tower when the Aes Sedai come in all of their past uh honorifics and everything just are nullified it, it's not so much that they're nullified is that none of you know it doesn't, doesn't matter. matter if you're the queen of wherever Aes Sedai is still a bigger title you have to put the tower first yeah. so your loyalties always have to be with the tower but if you do come with titles that can be of benefit to the tower, then they will happily let you use those titles. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. You know, if if you happen to be a queen of somewhere and an Aes Sedai, well, then it's like the tower gets to run that country for free. Yep. While pretending that they don't. Right. So Moraine, anything else about Moraine? Anybody have some loose change they want to bring up before we move on? So I had a conversation with some girlfriends yesterday. Um, who love me so much that they're actually watching the show. And um, <laughs> just because I refuse to stop talking about it. And, um, and, and actually there, there was, a, there was a, a few of us and only one hadn't watched the show. And uh, I didn't force the conversation. We just happened to end up talking about Wheel of Time for about half an hour. And I feel very sorry for the one friend, sorry, Hannah, who had to sit there and She's completely oblivious, but now she's going to watch it. So that's great. Um, but um, exactly. But one of my friends who's, who's just watched the show, you know, I was asked, you know, she kind of, she brought it up and she was telling me what she thought of each character. And she said, Maureen, she's got a savior complex. And I thought that was really oh, interesting. That is interesting. Mm -hmm. So let me put that mm. out to y'all. What do you think? The black wind. I am not immediately rejecting it. No, yeah. no. She's, I'm she's definitely got kind of the the white knight thing going for her. I can I can see that for sure. And she's ruthless with it. I, I will save you whether you want saving or not. <laughs> <laughs> there's definitely that, you know, that idea she has where no one else can do it as you know, as well as she can. And so step aside and let me handle it because I I am better. I am much smarter than you. God bless her. I'm, I'm the world's <laughs> only person with a PhD in dragonology at this moment. Right. <laughs> and David, you mentioned the black wind. Do you remember what sparked that thought? Well, that's, that's what, it, uh, what it used to attack her. Uh, its whole uh, message to her was that you can't protect them. You, you can't be their savior. Because you're not good enough. You will sacrifice them all for nothing. Right. Yeah. Very nice. It is, it is like it, it is very much expressed in the show that she like has literally sacrificed everything for this cause. You know, she doesn't have close relationships with people who are not in on the secret. She spent 20 years on the back of a horse. She is utterly ruthless she doesn't allow herself to have compassion 
or time for anything that stands in her way. Like we saw how she just, you know, didn't even attempt to rescue the ferryman. Um, so like this has become the focus of her being. So yeah, the savior complex really fits with that. But a bit of a romantic savior complex because she does get married on the day of her exile, which is pretty cool and sad yeah. and tragic and awesome and everything. <laughs> yeah, she's she's trying to save individuals and she's trying to save the world. She's got a bit on her plate. All right. And uh, speaking of bits on her plate, uh, we've got a, a couple more characters uh, from our original seven to get through. Uh, we've still got Perrin and we've got Matt. Um, Siobhan, who do you want to talk about between Perrin and Matt? Hi, I'm Dr. Pengalod. What seems to be ailing you today? Doc, it's the strangest thing. Every night after I've gone to bed, just as I start to drift off, I start yelling out strange words like Shire, Frodo, and Gollum. Last night I even yelled Mordor. I really don't know what to do. Ah, yes. I've been seeing this a lot lately. What you're experiencing is called Tolkien in your sleep. It's caused by an acute Lord of the Rings deficiency. Tolkien in my sleep? Oh no, that sounds serious. Don't worry, don't worry. It, it's really common right now. It can be treated with a very simple prescription. Here, take this. It's called Watch Party Lord of the Rings. Watch Party Lord of the Rings? It's a great podcast where they talk about everything related to Lord of the Rings. They go deep into the lore, talk about the film trilogy, old cartoon adaptations, and Amazon's Lord of the Rings series. Listen to it once a week and you'll stop Tolkien in your sleep in no time. Side effects of Watch Party Lord of the Rings may include happiness, giggling, merrymaking, jollification, woody banter, inner peace, enlightenment, and excessive Tolkien while awake. Caution, Watch Party Lord of the Rings may be addictive. I would like to talk about Perrin because I feel we don't really get to know him as a person very well. For the entirety of season one, he is overcome by grief. Mm -hmm. And you don't really get to know the person underneath that grief because we just we just don't have the time with him yeah yeah it seems like the only other uh character uh you know sort of character element that they really show of him is the sort of imply that he's got feelings for Egwene um, and it it's not something that uh it's it's not something that he a would either admit to or recognize as something that's actually happening. You know, he, he's either, he either di di dismisses it outright because it's not true or he's in denial about something. It seems. Yeah. Um, just quickly, I want to jump in here and uh, just uh, uh, introduce the character quickly. Uh, it's uh, Perrin Ibarra played by Marcus Rutherford. Um, he is from, uh, Marcus is from Nottingham, England. Um, he's, uh, fairly unknown outside of this role. Um, I understand he's done some stuff, uh, some smaller stuff with BBC or, and, and things like that, but, uh, nothing that, that most people would know him from. Um, he is playing Perrin Ibarra, who, um, is the son of Khan and Jocelyn Ibarra. Um, here's some information you did not get in the show. He has, uh, Two sisters and a brother. Uh, the sisters are Adora and Dizelle, and his brother is Patrum. 
Um, his family lives on a multi-generational farm, um, which is about more than a half day's ride from Emmons Field. So it's not close enough to just make day trips into, into Emmons Field. Um, he uh, became the blacksmith's apprentice at uh, age 12, at which point he lived in Emmons Field proper and only saw his family on feast days. Um, and then, as we saw in the show, he apparently at some point became married, uh, graduated, and became a, a, a blacksmith of his own. Um, and uh, what else do we know about Perrin uh, from the beginning of the show? He doesn't always look where he's swinging. <laughs> Would you? If, if there's a trollic around, yeah, that, that would tend to, uh, to to distract the aim a bit. So it seems like they, they kind of um, got rid of his family for the show because if he sees them on feast days, they should have either been there or he should have been with them. Yeah. I, well, I get the feeling that, you know, the, there was already more than enough cast to deal with, um, yeah. without trying to introduce parents, extended family. Right. So. Cause then you would introduce into that. Okay. Does Perrin try to save his wife and himself, or does he go after his family? Yeah. Leaving his wife to deal with the trollic alone. Yeah. Right. Just, it, it complicates things too much, I think. I feel like his backstory is the least fleshed out of all of them. I was going to say, I was disappointed. And even as Ruark was saying, we don't get to see the family. I was thinking, you're being the show. They could have just peppered them in the background. That would have been nice. But actually what Greg just said is you realize that they want to really keep it clear. Like the focus of him is Layla. So actually they didn't want any background distractions. So, okay. I won't grumble about that anymore. Yeah, which I can understand is also a reason not to have um, the Luhans who who were the owners of the forge that Perrin worked at in the books. Um, you know, you don't want to have that many extra characters to deal with when you're already dealing with Perrin and his wife. You know, that, right. that we need to focus on that. So we'll just yeah. say that we're time constraints. Um, so. Uh, what do we see of Perrin after that opening? Uh, what, what's, what's he like for the first several episodes? He's a yeah. big puddle of grief and anger. He takes care of people. And mm-hmm. a lot of that anger and grief comes from not being able to take care of Layla. And it happened on his mm-hmm. watch. And so, and, you know, the very act of trying to protect her and fight for her, also with her, you know, he loses her and he loses her by something he does and it doesn't matter that it was an accident it doesn't matter that it happened and you know the confusion and the chaos of the trollic invasion the fact that it happened at all and it was done by him you know it sends him spiraling you know we see you know we see echoes of that when he and Egwene are being tortured um where he's like no you know, don't, don't protect me. Um, I'll do this for you. You know, I'm, first of all, I'm not worth saving, but also it's, it seems to be like taking care of people is something he just does as a duty as, you know, he gives money to Matt and doesn't blink about it and stop Matt. You're being, you know, you're, you're speaking nonsense, trying to say you don't need this. Obviously you do. Um, 
And, you know, when it's with Egwene, it's like, you know, you have so much to live for. I don't. So you go ahead and, you know, I'll be the one captured and killed. Um, And it's just he's very quiet about it. It's not something he has to flaunt or, you know, be loud about or, you know, do grand gestures. He's like, of course, yes, this is my role. This is my place. I'm stepping into that and it's fine. So, so you're saying he, he sees something that needs doing and he does it. He does. Okay. Uh, David, you had something to say. Yeah. I just thought of this, but it, um, what they, what we see of the marriage between him and his wife almost seems like it's in the middle of kind of a, an argument through that whole couple of days and whether or not it's, uh, based around, um, Egwene and, and her not going to Egwene's ceremony doesn't matter, but it seems like he might be dealing with part of the issue being that he never got to make up with her before she died. That now the yeah. the last memory he has of her is having a cruddy two days worth of marriage. So there's that as well. Right. Yeah, yeah that goes with what I was saying about the anger. The anger is all toward himself. It's absolutely all toward himself. He is not a person that uh, that really takes it out on those that he loves. You know, he feels he has a duty to them. He, uh, you know, it very, very rarely does. He got mad at Matt uh, <laughs> at, at yeah. one point. But other than that, uh, you know, he he's... He internalizes so much. I mean, that worried look on his face, you know, that's, that is expressing his inner turmoil and everything is inner. You know, he, he, he's, he feels he failed. Uh, he failed his wife. He failed his village. He failed himself. And he's, he beats himself up about it very, very nicely, which, you know, he, he sort of with with the uh, the scene with Egwene and the uh, and the white cloaks. He was willing to take the punishment because he felt he deserved it. But what it did was it pulled something out of him. It pulled that um, waggy dog uh, <laughs> summoning out. So he he's got some internal. It seems like just this inner beast that he can now unleash. Hmm. Almost get the sense that was genetic, though. I mean, we haven't learned the nature of what his ability is, whether it's something that he was born with and it's kind of genetic, sort of like a trollic situation, or or if it's something that was brought upon because of the source and because of magic. But I get the sense that it was genetic in that his inner anger kind of comes from the fact that he's this wolf trying to explode and be angry because wolves are known for not really being able to control themselves. I also have to wonder if there's not another option. Like, is there something other than genetics and, and just the source? Is there other magic in this world? Right. So, the, so let's yeah, the, explore that for a minute. What do we think? Where do we think his his wolf powers are coming from? What do we think his wolf powers are? What do they indicate? How are how are they informing him as a person? I just well, assumed I it was a, a source. 
Yeah, I I was just assuming it's just another form of channeling. Yeah, I mean the the genetic aspect really never occurred to me. Uh, you know, I don't think it's like a you know mutant X gene kind of thing where uh, the these powers can be unlocked under certain stressors or something like that. It seems more of a you know, it, he was he was just able to reach out and touch it as being one of the Tavira and one of the, you know, one one of the the Two Rivers Five. There's a reason why he came along. He's got the ability to touch the source and where it comes from. Hmm, who knows? DW. But when we talked about the source and you mentioned how it works through the elements, wolves were not one of the things that normally the source can affect, right? Yeah, it's not uh, earth, fire, water, wolf. That, yeah, that, that's not so the... that's why I'm saying I think it's something other than the source and the fact that it's it's affecting living beings. Those wolves have an automatic link to Perrin that Perrin wasn't even aware of. Um, and so I, I'm definitely not opposed to David's ideas of it being genetic or something from something in his family. But I'm also curious if there's just something other than the source that hasn't been discussed yet or. Uh, will reveal itself um, in a different way. Well, I can point out that we we have met Min, who has her own ability, which is to see people's futures, pe- things that are going to happen to people, and, and interpret those signs. Um, and it is in no way connected to the source. Interesting. So yeah. Kala would have that. taken her. Yes. So, so here's another question. We've seen that the Ogier can manipulate trees to produce objects. Is that yes. manipulation of the source, or is that something else entirely? Um, as far as anyone is aware, Ogier have no connection to the source. That is part of why they seek out Steading, because Steading are completely cut off from the source. So that would be, again, a type of magic that is not source-related. And going back to Greg's comment, it seems to me more akin to like an X-gene type of thing, whether it's genetics or not. Something that's mm-hmm. kind of random throughout the world. Random people come become a bit able to do strange things. And it could be related to the breaking. I mean, if they were going crazy destroying the landscape it's possible that they also kind of messed with genetics at the same time in the same way and now it's evolved into this they just kind of got magic splashed everywhere and it got on some people and yeah (laughs) nature has uh found a way (laughs) no it's it's totally a multiverse thing there's another parent who doesn't have access There's a parent in another multiverse that is a wolf think, that thinks it's a human. Exactly. And there's just crossover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's accessing all of the parents in all of the verses. You you just watched uh, Spider-Man, didn't you? Actually, no, I'm really looking oh. forward to everything, everywhere, <laughs> all it. at once. Yes. Oh, everything, everywhere, all at once is going to be phenomenal. Some friends of mine saw it during uh, South by Southwest recently. And really? Gosh, <sighs> It. You you were a, a stunt extra in that one, weren't you? <laughs> yes, I am. I'm actually in the trailer uh, as a background person, briefly going through a, a revolving yes. door, man but, exiting building. Yes, man exiting building. <laughs> but the thing is, is on that day of watching it, uh, sorry, quick digression. On the day of watch or the day of filming it, 
I couldn't make out what this story was about. So I'm really excited because I have no clue. <laughs> I just knew from everything we were doing that I wanted to see this movie. And then I saw the trailer and I'm like, now I really want to see this movie. <laughs> I have no clue. I'm in it. I don't know what's going on. On a second digression, also at South by Southwest, we saw the uh, the premiere of uh, Apollo Ten and a Half, Rick Linklater's new animated film, and my son is in it. He also is a stunt extra. <laughs> in one <laughs> nice. of the first scenes, he uh, he gets nailed by a kickball and uh, gets the first big laugh of the movie. So, <laughs> is it a kickball to the face? Back of the head. Oh, okay. But awesome. I think that part was CG because I think it actually hit him on the shoulder. But uh. they. They changed it so yeah, it hits yeah. him on the head, but he it, it's it's an actual collapse. Yes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, April first, Netflix. Watch it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to uh, Perrin and the Wolves, um, which which is is my next punk band name. Uh, <laughs> I will be front um, row for that concert. Yeah. How how do we how do we feel that this connection with the wolves is affecting Perrin and and how he's reacting to everybody else on top of his grief? Um, do we do we think that he's he's dealing with this in a healthy way? Well, one of the things that I kind of have been going back and forth in my head is I'm curious that gets clear that Perrin's mood is affecting the wolves. I'm not sure it's not a two-way street. I think the wolves being around is sometimes affecting Perrin. And he's just figuring out what the heck is going on. Because for the longest time, he didn't even really think there was any connection to them. So, But I think that it's a two-way street in the, the he's affecting the wolves and the wolves are affecting him. And I can't wait to see what pans out for that, like what it really is, what the cause was. Okay. Um, anybody else have any thoughts on Perrin, be it wolves or grief or or uh, his 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 time with the the Tuatha on? Um, hey, hey, Brian, I just said it correctly. Tuatha on. Well, yeah, I think I think his time with the with the Tuatha on. Uh, Tuatha Wan, there you go. That's that was for you, Rick. Uh, <laughs> his his time gave him a, an interesting perspective, and I think possibly uh, his time with them may have given him a little bit more in touch with nature, and therefore possibly improved his, or you know, not necessarily improved, but uh, amplified his connection to the wolves because he really, uh, you know, he, he really uses that power and is able to touch it and get in touch with it a lot more easily after his time with them. He's seemingly holding he's his anger just- in though, when he's trying to practice the way of the leaf, because in the tent with the white cloaks, it seems like he's really releasing a huge amount of pent up rage right there. Oh yeah. Oh, big time. And you so also see him um, in the uh, when the, the Trolloc attack is going on. He's yelling at Loyal about, you know, how am I supposed to not do anything? How can you know? How can I not defend, you know, my friends? And how how am I? How else am I supposed to help? And Loyal, of course, being loyal says, "Well, you ask." <laughs> um, 
Um, is it just me or was Loyal completely channeling um, Mr. Rogers in that scene? <laughs> like, like, I just think about that that quote from Mr. Rogers of, you know, just look for the helpers kind of. Right. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, just it felt very much in the same vein. Anyway, I'm sorry, continue. He was wearing a red sweater, wasn't he? <laughs> I, I saw Perrin as being really drawn to the the way of the leaf. And I, I, not just because, you know, of his guilt, but also because he's, I think, inherently such a gentle person. Like you see his interactions with his friends where he's always, you know, um, comforting Egwene when she's cold and, and you know, doesn't know what to do. And um, like all of his interactions with his friends are so inc- incredibly nurturing. Like I just, I just really see that philosophy as something that would appeal to him. I also, I see it as an interesting, um, you know, the, the the saying goes, "Still waters run deep," and he seems to me to be a good example of that. In that, I don't think any of this anger or energy or or like pent up is recent. Only, I think it was enhanced by what happened with his wife. I think everything kind of got thrown into a weirdness, but I think he's the type that is the gentle giant, the the person who has like that that fire inside, but he's always keeping it at bay and protecting everyone somewhat in his own mind from himself, from, mm-hmm. you know, like he is scared of what he could do. And the more he's realizing the impact, like with the, the wolves coming out, I think the fear is also there as well. He's playing that layer of fear with the layer of like confusion, what's going on. And so when we see him in the tents and everything gets released, I think it's in a moment of anger for, uh, for Nynaeve. Uh, no, sorry, for Egwene. Egwene. Um, yes. in, in that moment of, of wanting to protect Egwene, I think it's one of the few moments that he's embraced all of what can come out. And it's that, is it, it, a lot of people who have uh, certain issues with uh, anger and um, their control of themselves. One of the phrases that gets tossed around is, "I pity the first person who I decide is worth the anger that I have inside of me." And those white cloaks definitely are in that moment of they are the first that parents come across that there's no question he will not be in the wrong if he lets them have his full wrath. I was just going to say before you mentioned that DW that it's really a Hulk style of storyline. Yeah. yeah. The whole thing yeah. with Bruce Banner being afraid to let the Hulk out, but then knowing the moments when he absolutely has to, to help his friends. You yeah. know, um, what you were just saying about, about Perrin right there. Um, it, it brought to mind, uh, the, the Superman or the justice league cartoon series. Um, the episode where Superman just unleashes on dark side. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and uh-huh. it was pretty much exactly what you were just saying. He was like, I have always had to hold back. I have always had to treat everything like it was made out of tissue paper. And you're the first time that I know that I can just let go and not only can you take it, you des- you deserve it. Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and, and comparing Perrin to Superman and Clark Kent in that way is, is suddenly very, very interesting to me. 
Also, <laughs> Kenny Rogers, the coward of the county. Oh, one of my favorite songs <laughs> in the world. 20 years of crawling was bottled up inside him. I wanted to come back to something that David said. It kind of broke my heart a little bit further with Perrin's storyline about the fact that he'd had this argument with Layla and hadn't had a chance to reconcile before he loses her. I just think that's another layer of tragedy on the whole situation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And if I may speak for some of the book fans, this particular trope didn't go down so well. And I really, really hate the fridged wife trope. Yeah. yeah I still hate it, but I understand. Like, I can really yeah. see how they're um, streamlining so much. I, I, I feel like we can let a, a tiny little spoiler out here. Uh, it's a, it's a little book spoiler. It's nothing important. Um, but in the books, the death that gets Perrin to, to start really wondering about, you know, can he, you know, should he let himself blah, blah, blah. And, and will he hurt people if he doesn't control himself and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's part of a scene where he accidentally kills a white cloak. Oh, score. Um, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and that is exactly, I think, the reason why they had to change it for the series, because if he had accidentally killed a white cloak, everybody'd be like, yeah, and? <laughs> yeah, you're not exactly uh, getting a lot of uh, sympathy for the white cloaks. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I mean, as much as I hate the fridge wife, trope i i think that they made the correct choice here in that it's going to resonate more with the audience right off the bat than than you know oops i accidentally killed a white cloak right well yeah, and feel and free more... not to answer but is in the books does he also have an interest in Egwene? uh no not not okay. no 100 that also no. feels like something they did in that in, in the creation of the wife was create that weird awkwardness yeah. in him. So the second, him- second thing I didn't like about parody in the, in the show. Was that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really hoping that, that that was just, um, you know, misinterpretation of their relationship because I really love the brother sister dynamic yeah. that they have going yeah. on. And I would, I don't want them to ruin that. <laughs> yeah, and, right. and in the books, I'm I I I think I'm remembering this correctly, but when they were uh traveling with the Tuathon, they they actually had a discussion where Perrin pretty much was like, No, I, I totally think of you like a sister and, and yeah. I will, you know, protect you with my dying breath, but but you're my sister kind of thing. Yeah. I think they needed some yeah. extra tension for that particular episode and they kind of just slapped it on and we're not gonna see yeah. it ever again. Yeah, it's it's kind of funny how the only people that really felt that, you know, that that was a, a possible thing were were Layla and Matt. Nineve. Nineve oh yeah, that's true. Nineve kind yeah. of felt it yeah. too. Yeah. But I think like Siobhan said, that there I so I just rewatched um episode three um and was talking about it with some friends. And that whole s- sequence with Perrin and Egwene on the road and you know, he's protecting her. And I loved it the first time around and the second and the third. And basically, I loved that whole sequence until episode seven. 
ruined it for me. <laughs> it's like, no. And now I'm rewatching it and and it's it isn't the brother sister. It isn't the really good platonic friendship, right? But I think um I think I read somewhere that they had shot some extra scenes where they made that the the innuendo more obvious. But they for whatever reason they didn't do that. So because until we get to episode seven, it, it does really play out as really good friends. These are a group of kids that grew up together, you know, they did everything together, and this is just really good friendship. Well, well, the only real reasons we have to to think that Perrin and or Perrin has the the has been holding a torch for Egwene are Nynaeve saying it in that episode and the the unused portions of the first episode script. Um, and since those unused portions didn't make it into the show, in my opinion, they aren't canon, which leaves Nynaeve. And in my opinion, that it, means that Nynaeve just mis, misread the situation and this is a, something that my, Nynaeve constructed and is not the truth in any way, shape, or form. That That's that's my canon and I'm sticking Black to Wind it. Brings it I always too. took it as Nynaeve was jealous. Yeah, yeah. I see Nynaeve as being very prone to jealousy. And she has her own interest in Egwene. And so she's a little territorial Hands about off. it. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd like I, I I would like it to be that, except this this there's two things from Perrin's perspective. One is his dream, where he dreams of Layla Layla lying there with the wolf eating her intestines and she turns to him with her dead eyes and says, I know. And I didn't know what it was that she knew. But when, after we see the whole show, it's like, oh, okay, was that, was that it, that she knew that he had feelings? And then, as David said, the black wind says that yeah, but your I wife would say knew that, that you black were wind, in love. I would say the black wind doesn't necessarily tell us truths. It, it can tell us lies that we believe about ourselves. Yeah. Um, and I think maybe he's heard that from other people, so it's a lie that he, believe, he maybe believes somewhere deep inside, but it is not the truth. Well, I'm all for this this being false and being dropped and yeah. season two starts and we just I, pretend I, that I'm little just, blip didn't I happen. I'm just trying to lawyer my way into my personal <laughs> canon here as much as possible. I'm sold. <laughs> good chance yeah, they I mean, just it, do, it doesn't um, seem It doesn't seem like it would, having that be real would, uh, would really forward the story, you know. Yeah. What, what good does having a triangle do you know but the only thing it, it well sort of a quadrangle there if you're if you throw uh Egwene into there or a naive i mean um yeah it's it, it's like they're presenting her with with so many choices and now with with uh yeah <laughs> i don't really know my mind is boggled a little bit I think they used it as a bit of a catalyst to Rand waking up as the dragon in that episode. So hopefully that that's the only reason for it. And it's gone from now on. Possibly. I mean, it, it, is it, yeah. is it I mean, telling I mean, that well, Rand that, that didn't? That scene was, I was, I was going to say that scene was directly after they had all just dealt with, with the black wind and it was, you know, they, they, they were all still raw from, from the black wind telling them truths and lies and, and things that they didn't want to, to hear. 
And so, yeah, they're all kind of snapping out a little bit because they're all feeling very raw. And I, you know, I really, really just think that it was naive kind of snapping at something that she thinks that everybody else it, it is thinks she's off base with. Yeah. It, it, it's really telling that Rand just puts it out of his mind entirely. It's like, no, that's impossible. You know, yeah. it's Rand is putting it out of his mind. Perrin is putting it out of his mind, but it's kind of sticking with everybody else, which is odd. Yeah. I think Egwene and Perrin resolved it really quickly, though. They had that moment, right, mm-hmm. at the start of the final episode where she says, yeah. are we okay? And he's like, always, something like that. Yeah. yeah. So I, to me, I was like, okay, good. It was obviously just really minor, insignificant. It doesn't have a hold over yeah. Perrin, and now they're going to go was, back to being friends. It was that, a MacGuffin. It, yeah, that seems it, very It was a minor speed too. bump that will not be addressed in the future. That, that, yeah. That's what we're thinking, yeah. yeah. And I think the episode that, um, that you all did about the, the leaked script... Uh, which I really enjoyed listening to. I think somebody, it might, might have been DW, who'd said something about, you know, sometimes in the script, they'll put things in to get it greenlit, right? right. So things have been put in there for the execs, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. a, a triangle, you know, is 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 a trope that's commonly used. So yeah. maybe they put it in there and then they actually didn't film a lot of the things that they had in those scripts that got signed off. Um, but then they... They kept that bit of friction for the end. And like you've all said, you know, that they, they needed that release after coming out of the ways, you know, to just be like shout at each other, get it all off their chest. And then they go back to just being like, great, we feel better now. We've like said what yeah. we needed to say. Um, but coming back to the script, there's, there's something else about Perrin, which I find really interesting. Perrin and Layla. I noticed it in the show. And then when I read the leaked script, it was actually in, in the notes. There's like four scenes with Perrin and Layla where Layla's holding his little finger. It seems to be this like little, you know, affectation that they have. And it happens when they're standing, they're in the forge, uh, when they're lying in bed, um, when they're at the lantern ceremony, and then when she's dying, she her hand comes up and holds his little finger. And... I thought it was really interesting. Um, and I have theories, which I can't share because they're spoilers. Um, but I don't think we're going to have four scenes where they show that without it having some kind of significance later on. What do you Chekhov's think? Chekhov's pinky. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I would agree. And I, I think they, even with what they did shoot, they set up that there was love there. There was, you know whatever confusion maybe have existed does not delete that there was love. And that I think adds to why it was so, you know, traumatic for him to have been involved in that death. If it was somebody that he didn't like really care about and he was forced into that marriage, it's awkward, but it's not the same as a, somebody that you actually felt shared a part of your heart kind of thing. They figured out how to make us love Layla before she died in like, 20 minutes, you know, so it's important. Yeah, it wasn't quite up, but it was, you know, they did a good job. Yeah. I, I love that little pinky holding scene, though. I caught that um, when she died, that she grabbed his hand. And to me, it felt like her way of saying, I don't blame you. Yeah, but I don't think he heard it. Oh, well, he, no. of course, he's going to blame himself. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
But you know, I do I do love that idea though of the pinky thing because I think you know most couples most relationships have little things that are them that aren't necessarily the the standard that everybody does so for them as writers to have found a way for these two to have something that made it so much more like unique and I think that added to the it's it's the you know attention to the details helps the bigger picture seem more true right it shows the depth of their relationship, I think. Yeah. Because initially, in the first, um, the first time you see that, we, we were all kind of, uh, and I think you might have said it in the first episode um, that you were discussing as well, is that, oh, why is he touching her stomach? Is she pregnant? Has she had a miscarriage? Is she pregnant? You know, and there was all these theories that came up. And then it's like, once you've watched it, it's like, oh, hang on. The focus, the camera shot on the stomach isn't on the stomach, it's on the hand because she's reaching to hold this finger. And as you see it again and again, I think that's a really lovely nonverbal way to show the depth of their relationship. So regardless of whatever, you know, outside whispering, gossip, you know, feelings about another woman, they definitely had a real, a real love there. And I think Sanderson, Brandon Sanderson, um, the, you know, who, who finished writing the series, he said something I think it was kind of a way to help people understand perhaps, I think Siobhan, did you say that Perrin didn't really seem to have much to do for the whole of the story because he's so grief stricken. Yeah. But it, Sanderson said, you know, if you start off with something so horrific happening to a character, you can't move away from that because it diminishes, you know, the severity of what just happened. So Perrin mm. has to really carry that grief through for it to feel authentic and real to his character as well. But then it does leave with him with quite a lot of heaviness and then not much to do later on. But I still think that it, despite all the changes that happened for the final two episodes, I think they did, did a great job to have Perrin wrestling with that within him, you know, which path should he take and how can he help? And he ends up, still ends up with a pickaxe in his hand, which then he puts down at the end. So. So my question to you all now is, uh, where do we think Perrin is headed? Where, where do we think his, his journey is going? Hard to know. Hard to know. I know that he is, he is loyal to his friends. So uh, he seems like, it seems like he's going to be a part of, of Rand's journey. Uh, it seems that he and Rand were the closest uh, among well, among the guys, at least. Uh, he seems he seems to be a little closer to Egwene, but uh, I think he's he has the the opportunity to when he meets up with when he meets up with Rand again. Uh, you know, they're going to discuss it. It's like, is this worth it? And if it's worth it, I'm with you. I just have that. That's the feeling I get. I, I don't think he wants to go home. I feel I'm like curious. he'll go wherever the girls go. Yeah. Mainly Egwene, because um, he's been with her this entire time anyway. But I think Perrin is at a point where his journey is very open-ended. And so the other three have, well, you know, other four have very clear options and directions of what they want to do and where they want to go. And then there's Perrin, who's just kind of, at least right now in this moment, you know, 
a floater. And so I think whatever Egwene and or Nynaeve chooses, he'll go as, you know, their support system, essentially. I'm curious if there's going to be a... um... I agree that his story is open-ended. However, we have that bit at the end, but also knowing that that bit at the end with Pat and Fane was because those were originally supposed to be with Matt. And so I don't know if it was like Matt would have been the person to go after Pat and Fane, and then they had to change things. But I kind of wonder if Perrin, as the story is now going, doesn't feel some like feeling of wanting to know what Pat and Fane's up to. And is he responsible for like what Pat and Fane did here? And then do I need to go stop this guy? Do I need to get the dagger back? He's got the dagger that we know the dagger's a bad thing. Like all of that encompassed in his closing at the end of that first season. Um, so I, I feel like I can shed a little bit of light on that. Um, it, it's not really giving away anything to say that, as we already said, the, the, Perrin's scenes in in those that last episode were very much supposed to be Matt's scenes. Um Matt and and Pot and Fane are, you know, they're they're separate sides of a magnet pulling towards each other. You, you know, you you can feel that with with their characters. Um so that's very much his confrontation. Um and Perrin goes along with Matt in that journey in the books at this point. So having Perrin fill in for Matt in that situation was not very far from where Perrin was. No, and that, and that I, in thinking on that line, I'm wondering if he's not to help the story back on track, going to like, go get uh, Matt to then tell him what he saw with Pat and Fane. Oh yeah. Like they've, they've left that as an opening. He knows Matt has left. Everybody's a little worried about Matt, Perrin included. and. I think Perrin knows uh, Matt's connection to Pat and Fane and that they were friends back in, in uh, Two Rivers. So like, I think that that might be a way to bring Matt back into the story if Perrin goes and gets him. That's, that's true. He may find him in a bar somewhere and go, mate, uh, <laughs> we've got this to deal with. Yeah. You look a little different, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> It's me. Deal with it. Dang, how'd you find me after my reconstructive surgery? (laughs) It's the darkness starting to overtake him again. Like changing your nose would ever stop me from recognizing you, my dear friend. And then we just don't talk about it again. Uh, A little roadie action in there. It's me. I'm here. Deal with it. Yeah. Uh, speaking of never talking about him again, we're about to talk about him, about him a whole lot. Uh, we've got our last main character. It's uh, Matram Cawthon, uh, played by Barney Harris. Yep. Um, for now. Uh, for, for this first season, yes. Uh, Barney was also a fairly unknown actor. Um, this, this was kind of his big break. Uh, you know, we're sad to, to see him leave the production, but uh, we hope, hope for the best for him in the future. Um, the character he played in this first season was, uh, as I said, Matram Cawthon, uh, son of Abel and Natty Cawthon, um, who in the book are just a horse trader and farmer and and farm wife. Um, as we saw in the show, they're they're somewhat lower station than that. Um, what what do we know about Matt uh, from the, from there? 
I, I really enjoyed Matt. He is such a multifaceted character. He has um, this incredible protective streak around children. He has like this very obvious caring for his friends, but at the same time, he is like capable of doing so many, he's making so many bad choices. (laughs) He is a rogue. He is a scoundrel. He's, uh, he, he's someone who could go, could go any way the wind blows. You know, he, he's got a, he, he seems like he's got a moral compass, but it, you know, it's flexible. He cares for children. He wants to protect his family uh, and his friends, but he'll also steal from random people. So, you know, he's, he's, he's a con artist with a heart of gold kind of thing. Not above using his looks to get away with shit. That's true. That's true. Very self-aware that people find him attractive. I feel like which is why it's a bit mean when Ran says I could do better. I'm like, hey, Matt's pretty good looking. Okay, what do you mean you could do better? I feel like like Egwene, he's very empathetic as well, which is part of why the the darkness can take him so easily. I think mm. is because he can feel that side of it as well. From a casting trope, I feel like they did try to like create the bad boy. Oh yeah, he's he's the dark brooding. You need to save him. Member of the team. Okay, but like Shabon said, he's way more nuanced than that. So it's kind of it almost conflicts with itself as the show goes on. Well, that's the twists you can add to a story. Is you you introduce a character where they get an initial feeling, and then you can, as you tell the story, show that that's not necessarily the case for this person. So, they don't fit in the trope that we we presented them as. So, how do we feel that Matt changed as the story went along uh, to go to to chase down that rabbit, as it were? Well, I think one of the aspects that that they did a good job of is I don't get the feeling he was being pulled toward the evil. If there was evil that happened and stuff like that, he was fighting it. There was, which, you know, the the bad boy trope is kind of like the, no, I'm bad and I know it, you you know. But he's, he was, like the moments that we see where he's actually trying to protect a little kid or like they, and they paint it like, maybe he's gone dark. Oh no, he's trying to stop this even worse thing that's about to happen. Exactly. Like he's not, uh, he's not standing there, you know, meditating on the murder of the family. He's staring down the, the thing in the shadows. Yeah. And he feels a lot of guilt about that. He, he steals or connives the, the bracelet away, but it's because he needs money to, to buy lanterns for his family. And he goes and he, he steals from the dead Aiel body, but he's also going to be respectful to that person. I, I love that scene with the body. I'm glad you brought that up because I always I felt like that was such a, a a clear indication of his character. Like he'll do what needs to be done and do what he knows is kind of a sketchy thing, stealing from someone who's dead. But at the same time, he apologizes, even though the person can't hear him. He apologizes for what he's doing. Well, and, and there's a rationale that, yeah. that everybody else in the town are people he could probably steal from, but he's going from the person who he can rationalize that it won't need it 
anymore. He's a rogue with a code. Yeah. 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 And again, that's the empathy, right? Like you, if you can feel for a dead man, you're definitely empathetic. Well, that's why I feel like Tom walking up on him was kind of assessing that. Like, where are you at in this? I see what you're doing. What is your reason? Okay, okay. He tried Maybe to be I all don't tough have to just Tom... kill you right now. Well, and I think Tom. <laughs> and he tried to be himself. all tough when Tom first came up on him, but as they spoke, you know, his true nature started to started to show. Yeah. So, so you're all saying he's kind of a rogue, but a rogue that's still a Two Rivers boy at heart. He has yeah. a strong ethical code, uh, and I mean. It might not align with everybody else's, but it doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean he's not extremely conscious of the consequences of his actions on other people. It doesn't mean that he's, you know, not going to do his best to do as right a thing as possible. That's how I'm going to put it. And to pull from archetypes, he's the person who is protecting those that can't protect themselves. Right. He is the person that sees himself as the bottom of the rung among the people in his circle, but knows that there are people beneath him that he is going to risk his life for. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, the high, the whole higher purpose, you know, you get that Han Solo, you know, the begrudging may the force be with you. And then coming back and saving the day, which I will admit the Han Solo thing is what I was expecting toward the end is because I didn't know about the recasting. I was totally expecting some moment. Like we'd have him ride in on a horse <laughs> with an army that he went and got, you know, kind of. <laughs> uh, just got to sneak like up behind him. Patton Fane. And yeah, great shot kid. <laughs> That's my dagger. <laughs> I, I, so to bring it back to a little, a little bit more of the empathy. I really like what uh, DW said about when you're at the bottom of the, you know, of the of the chain, you 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 look for look after those who are even more beneath you. But also being at the bottom, I think it gives you a, a, a different perspective to see others in pain and others in difficulty. Yeah. And you know, oh, let me tell you of all the ways I love Matram Cawthon, but in the show. I just love how he is the one who notices when, you know, everyone's getting down and he'll do something, you know, he'll make a quip, he'll make a remark. When he like starts singing he, the... Yeah, yeah he starts start singing. singing. Yeah. So, you know, when, when Rand has a complete meltdown, his first, with Moraine, it's Matt that's saying, yeah, sure, she's probably going to kill us when she no longer has, you know, any need for us. But the lady does shoot fireballs, so... You know, until then, let's just stay on her good side. You know, and he picks up his saddle and off he's, you know, he's showing them. Come on. Yes, I agree completely. But we, right now we need to stick together. And this then, is nuts, options. but we have to do it. Yeah, absolutely. He, he totally sees that. But it's like he's keeping them together. And then, yeah, you know, the lovely shot of everyone getting quite down and Moraine's in pain and he starts singing the song. Right? And then we get the great story from from Maureen. She it's almost like it revives her enough to give that story of Manetherin. And then another favorite bit is, you know, in Shadalagoth when Perrin's having a little, you know, weep in the corner and he goes over and he's just this, oh it's like he just gathers Perrin up in his metaphorical arms and gives him a big hug. 
you know, and then he gives him the dagger. I mean, it's followed up with Damas, you know, let's re- now replace the dagger by getting a magical dagger that I shouldn't pick up. But anyway, <laughs> he does do that <laughs> moment <laughs> of like, here's Layla's dagger and I'm going to give it to you, you know. And and, and some, so there are two minor scenes in the first book that are around Matt, uh, Matt and Rand that I absolutely love. And they're not in the show in the same way, but they are in the show. And Ruark will hopefully be able to back me up on this. So the friendship, right? So you see that with, you know, Matt has these moments with Rand and with Perrin and with, with all of them. But when they're on um, in the farm and Matt's starting to go dark and then Rand turns over and says, Matt, you know, I'm here, you know I'm here, right? Again, this friendship, that it's these moments between Matt and others that you really see that these, you know, amazing life altering things are happening, but these are good kids. They have real affection and friendship and loyalty. And that even when shit hits the fan, they might swear at each other, but they'll be there. They'll still be standing, you know, next to each other. And I just love the fact that I didn't get my favorite scenes, but that moment between Rand and Matt and again, the book readers will hopefully remember which ones I'm thinking about. We got that. We got that moment of real friendship where no matter what happens, we're going to stay here and be with each other. Yeah. You didn't get what you wanted, but you got what you needed. Yeah. Ooh. Oh, oh now I just need to go listen to the Rolling Stones. All right. Um. <laughs> <laughs> when he does go, when he's getting dark, though, um, you know, like you've all said, he's he's being influenced by the dagger, but he's still got such a strong code that all his entire focus is on, you know, random, you know, tell me again, I didn't kill, I didn't kill them. Like he needs to be constantly reminded because that would be the worst thing yeah. for him to think that he'd kill the family and especially the young girl. Well, and, and I think it was Samaria who pointed out in the episode when they were approaching uh, uh, Tarvalon. Uh, when the kid goes running by and Matt kind of snaps at the kid, she was like, that, that's the point when I was really concerned about Matt because that was a little kid, you know? I was. And it actually reminded me of me. It's like, because I have three godchildren and the oldest is, will be six in a couple of weeks. And I remember I snapped at him because I was just so tired and I felt immediately horrible. You know, like the look on his face. He's like, you never did that to me before. And I was like, I'm sorry, baby, I'll never do it again. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, Matt also has just like that very basic affection. And I think it ties into children being naturally inherently defenseless and vulnerable. And, you know, a lot of people complain about kids like, oh, gosh, they're so loud. Everything's so dramatic. They cry about everything. And I'm like, well, if you've only been on this planet for, you know, three to 10 years, and this is all you know, but you have as much emotion as any adult, you would probably act the same way too. Um, And I think Matt recognizes that. And so he's like, I you know, he's kind of parenting himself where he's like, I'm going to treat a child the way I wish somebody had treated me when I was, you know, this defenseless, defenseless, vulnerable person um, who, you know, had too much emotion to handle. You know, I didn't have the words or, you know, the resources to really channel that. And nobody came running to me. Nobody came and comforted me. Nobody even gave me a hug and, you know, kissed me goodnight and tucked me in. 
So I'm going to, you know, kind of, you know, heal and self-soothe myself by being the adult to a child that I wish, you know, an adult had been to child me. Um, And, you know, we see that with his sisters, especially, you know, he's, you know, the big brother who has to be their dad because their real dad sucks. Um, (laughs) We see that with the little girl on the farm, you know, obviously he's definitely seeing his sisters in that little girl, but, you know, he's deathly afraid, literally deathly afraid that, you know, he not only put that little girl in that position in the first place, but, you know, that he was, you know, kind of controlled um, to, you know, murder her. And then, you know, so for him to just go out and, you know, yell at a kid, I was like, oh my gosh, that's not Matt. Something's, you know, something is very, very wrong and we have to fix this quick. Well, in the situations with his sister, uh, it, it, it makes me wonder, and I'm sure we'll probably find out at some point if there is, but what trauma he suffered before they came along because that kind of behavior is somebody who's like, I'm not going to let you go through what I went through. Exactly. I'm going to protect you from what I had to deal with these two as parents. I didn't have somebody to be a buffer. I'm going to be that buffer for you. So was he beaten? Was he abused? Like what happened to him in that family before those two little girls came along that has him so like, it will not happen to them. Not on my watch. Exactly. Um. Well, I mean, even if his parents remained unchanged back then, that that would be enough, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And you and you internalize those messages like the, yeah. the you know, his mother calls him a prick at one point and you know, their complete neglect of their kids or disinterest in their kids, you internalize that. And I think yeah. one of the reasons that Matt was vulnerable to the dark side is because he sees himself as a bad person deep down. Um, Like, I think he's internalized that message to a point where it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, like Moraine talks about how the, the, the darkness was feeding off him as much as he was feeding off it. And I think that darkness is, is, probably got something to do with the fact that the way he was raised, he's internalized these messages about himself. I, I totally agree. His mom says that to him, though, in the first episode, that you're going to turn out, you're going to be just like your dad, a prick. Yeah. And that was not and the then, first time she said that. No. Yeah, absolutely right. So that's like Siobhan saying, he has, he's hearing it and he's taking it on. And then I think then there is something more significant in the episode where Rand turns up when when he's about to chop the wood and he says, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you being like this? Rand's like, you know, noticing that Matt's being more of a, more dickishness than usual. But he says, you know, uh, you're a prick. And in that moment, I just thought Matt's hearing that in a different way. Like for Mm -hmm. for Rand to say that, that's not just Rand being annoyed. He is mirroring back what his mum's been saying all these years. Yeah. That one cut cut him to the bone. Yeah. You see that, right? There's like a, like a little flinch there. I see. I still think that there's something more than words in, in his past. And I think if not for Matt being in that family now, I think those little girls would be going through more than words. 
I don't yeah. feel like those are parents that wouldn't raise their hand to their kid, but I, I do feel that both of them are scared to do it with Matt because Matt's now big enough to respond. Matt's now big enough to respond. So. I think that um, some of you touched upon this in the, in the, again, in the first episode. So everyone who lights a, a lantern, right. It's a grief, it's a grief ceremony. So there's something there that he was willing to steal from a friend, right? He stole from a friend to get the lanterns because he needed them all to have the lanterns. And he has one for each of his sisters and he also, his mom also has one and his mom's crying. So I don't know if it was if it was you all that mentioned it or I heard it somewhere else that was there some another child between Matt yeah. and the twins? Mm-hmm. Something uh-huh. happened due to yeah. the neglect. And now he's, you know... Now he's become the parent of the sisters because his parents just can't do it. Yeah. And and it's completely instinctive. Like when the girls are missing in the Trolloc attack, he doesn't stop to think about it. He goes, he's going looking for them. Yeah. He he was in a place of safety and he immediately was like, nope, going back out there. Yep. He behaved like a parent out there. That's for sure. Yeah. I love that Simon said that he's become their parent because I think that's, He's the most parental unit of anybody in the group. Even Moraine and Lan aren't as parent as he is. And I know my wife's family, she comes from a family where the parents were a little bit absent, mostly because her mom was uh, bedridden her entire life. And the kids have to step up and become parents. And they grow up really, really fast and gain those skills those parental skills, those really that empathy that, um, okay, where is everybody? Where are they safe? What's going on? That sort of thing comes from that situation. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I, that I, I got on first, you know, the, the first time I saw that family dynamic, it's like, yeah, he's a child of alcoholics. There's a, there's a, a definite, there's a definite thing, you know, in that protectiveness is, is part of the, you know, part of the psyche. It's, yep. it and goes with the territory. Even if it's not abuse, like DW had mentioned, which it could be, even if it's just absenteeism, he's the older ch- brother and he has to become that parent. And so then it breeds those parental skills that you don't have until you're a parent. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is, you know, the, the alcoholism could be part of the, you know, that, that addictive thing could be in response to a tragedy could be in response to, you know, say losing a middle child and, uh, you know, the, the parents are there, they're, they're out of it at that point. They're not maybe able to maybe do the parents what they weren't always do. this bad. Right. Right. It's like maybe that. Maybe Abel did used to be a, a horse trader. Yeah. Yeah. Before he became a womanizing, you know, prick. So there's a, uh, it, it, it's entirely plausible. It's entirely plausible that something happened. It sent them spiraling and he had to take over. You know, that, that's what I get. It may not necessarily be abuse. It may just be, they've checked out because they couldn't, they couldn't deal. But there's, there's verbal abuse as well, because there's different types of abuse, right? So right, right, right. We're saying that maybe maybe it wasn't physical, but we don't have anything to say either way. Maybe. Right, and that's you know part of the that's part of the addiction cycle too. So, you know, so chicken then, and egg again. 
So then what does it say that he gets out of that situation and out on the road and the first thing he does is finds an enchanted dagger that is obviously physically addictive and and is is Shiny. very abusive in its own way. Mm-hmm. That's familiar. And not to be too chicken or egg again, but <laughs> did anybody else feel the dagger was calling to Matt? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I, I don't feel like he just found that. And went, this is great. That thing went. Oh no, that's the one I want. That one. Yeah. Bring him to me. Have him washed and brought to my chambers. He's got the. It felt like he was trying to find something in that scene. Not necessarily that he was just going off exploring and like la di da di da. Ooh, it's like no, there is something out there specifically that I want, and you know he finds it, and then and then he sits down. Does he want it or does it want him? Something something wakes him, right? Something wakes him. There's a whispering, yeah. there's a certain yeah. a certain whistling in the background, and then he wakes up with a start, and then he's being lured. And that dagger wasn't sitting out in the open either. He had to move things to find it. Yeah. We kind of talked about this when we went over the the darkness or the evil of Shadar Lagoth, that it seeks out more evil. Like that it kind of propagates on itself so it can find those dark sides of Matt and call to him. Well, and we heard from the rumors of uh, Shadar Lagoth that that the people there, like the doors closed and then when opened, all the people were gone. I kind of got my own canon, whether or not this is true or whatever, but the story that played in my head was whoever the owner of that dagger is and behind the evil that's behind it is the one that was whispering like there was almost a possession moment. Like, come with me. I have something for you. Bringing Matt over to the dagger. Yeah, move that rock. I hit it right there. Perfect. Now go out and do more of my work. And <laughs> make a great. You're bit. subtle, Rourke. You're subtle. <laughs> I, I, I'm just. Oh, oh, oh were, were you done talking? I was just over here checking my phone. I was, I was checking my phone. Yeah. So that was. That's the story that played in my head, and maybe there's apparently some possibility to it. Um, I, th- I'm sorry. I, I just turned back in. Yeah. Um, um yeah, maybe so. Who, who, who knows? Ruak, are you proud of my poker face? Yeah, that was, that was a, yeah, Lady Gaga, just like Lady Gaga. And just so you realize that's the biggest tell of all asking what, how's my poker face? <laughs> <laughs> Sam, I didn't I remember if it was anything this until you said something. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't remember if it was this episode or the previous episode, but there was something we were talking about it, all of us, and we all had like smiles on our faces and I'm looking at the screen and I see the two of them sitting there as still as possible, <laughs> like trying not to smile blank at the screen because if I do anything, it will tell. <laughs> Yeah, so the I shredded the inside of my cheeks because I was right. just like, I think that so was hard. it. I think that was it. <laughs> Well, I can already tell you, DW, you said something in this episode very unintentionally that had me biting the inside of my lips so hard because... <laughs> that That's my skill. <laughs> yeah. It, and, and in this case, it wasn't a joke. It was it was something else. And it, it was just like, oh boy, if you only knew. <laughs> and, and, like, and the book readers out there are going to know instantly what I'm referring to. And it's going on the spreadsheet. It's gonna be very interesting reading. It, I, I, I looked at you, us. Saima, and you you were doing the exact same thing. I was I looking was at you. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. 
Oh, it anyway. is so nice having somebody else on the show that I can I can share those moments with. Your and then when you no let us know that, then that gives us a huge hint. So <laughs> you, don't, you don't have to say very astute nearly as much. Yes. Right. <laughs> That's a very astute observation. Yes, very much so. All we have to um, do I'm is try and get a few at least. <laughs> All we so have to do is look to, over at to Simon that. to see how much of her face she has eaten. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, back to Matt, uh, where we were at. Um, where do we think Matt is headed? Where Where's the the next next step of the journey for Matt? Do we think? There's a part of him that I think wants to go home and there's a part of him that I think wants to just crawl into a bottle somewhere. Um, I see him just kind of hanging out somewhere where no one can find him just being the, you know, the, the Damon Runyon character, the, uh, you know, the Charles Bukowski barfly, just the, the, the guy oh, yeah. with secrets yeah. that he's just trying to drown. It's Logan oh, oh. in the bar that people keep walking in and trying to get him to join their team. He just sits and drinks and no, sets him back down. <laughs> Fuck off. You know, I could I could easily see Matt reading Bukowski now that you bring that up. But yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, anybody else? I think he'll head back to the farm. I think that's still where his uh, mind is at right now. You think he's going back? He has to get back to take care of his sisters? Uh, no, to the to the farm where the family died first. Oh, oh. And I, he, and he I needs do to, believe it's needs possible it he will him. meet up with Tom along the way while doing that. Interesting. Uh, DW. I just had a thought based on the my in, in voicing my thought of how he got the dagger. Now I'm wondering if he's not still somewhat uh, hold, connected hold, hold to on, it. Hold on, hold on. Before you can before you continue that, Simon, okay. turn off your video. <laughs> come on i'm no. getting better <laughs> but essentially uh, okay. to, to sum up i have a feeling that we may not have to see perrin go after matt i think matt may be on his own trying to be drawn to the dagger while perrin is chasing pad and fane and they're going to meet up that way that's my yeah. prediction that's oh, good okay yeah yeah so we, we also know that moraine sent the red um, Aja after him. Yeah. So um, I'm kind of interested to see what happens if they catch up with him. Do like do they have a look at him and say he can't channel, so we'll just let him go, or what happens there? Does he hide from them? I think they're only going to be looking for him in the city, though. Yeah. Well, that's the last place he was seen, and he was already yeah. headed out. It looked like. I yeah I don't yeah. I don't know I mean he hasn't really shown the ability to channel on his own so much that at least that we could tell, you know, everything that happened was through that dagger. So I will also uh, say so it, much. Oh, good. Was it external? Did the dagger call out to him or was he you know, some little internal, you know, thing seeking it? Uh, if it had been calling out to him, then, you know, he very well could just not channel or at least be able to hide it very well. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm curious if, like, not just where he's going now, but what the rewrite was. I'm curious where he was going to be going before they had to do the rewrite and how they've had to adapt it. And at what point, I know I don't, I don't think we'll get this answer, and this is something that you two also 
even as book readers may be wondering this, but yeah. at what point they're going to be back on the track that they were like, is it, are they starting the next season? They're like, we've already, we've, you know, wiped it clean. It's clear. Everything's now back up. This is where the script was supposed to be. Or are we going to take two episodes to bring Matt back to a place that, okay, now we're back on the script we were before we had to do a change. I'm curious how much of an impact, if there's still a further impact that the change of, of actor is going to play. Well, it's something that they're going to well, have to address. Lends credence to your theory. Since, uh, they pretty much wrote uh, Perrin into Matt's role there. Whatever we see happen to Perrin up to a certain point is probably going to mirror what Matt's doing or what Matt until should they have been meet doing. up with one another. So my thoughts on this are it won't take much to get Matt to where he needs to be to, to take up his role in the story at this point i don't see it taking longer than a one or two episode arc to get him there um poss you know possibly within an episode um depending on what they decide to say he was doing after he left the left them behind at the way gate um but i don't see it being very difficult to get him back to where he should be in the story yeah if you just crawled into a tavern somewhere and you know Perrin finds him before before the reds do i mean you know it, it's very track. easy to explain a way that he ended up crawling into a tavern that's going to put him directly in the path of the other taviran you know it, it, that's how taviran work so <laughs> tavern called into a pattern tom's playing there <laughs> <laughs> all the gin joints in all the world you gotta walk into mine well and that could easily explain why the red don't find him too because if he's taviran he could just be I honestly causing them not to look in the place he's at. I'm wondering if the if the red being after him isn't something that they're also going to sit on for a while till hopefully they're hoping much of the viewers have forgotten. And then there's going to be a moment where the red walk in and everybody's going to have that like, oh, that's right. They're after Matt. Like uh, that's a much more interesting storyline thing if they do that. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. They've got to mention he's a wanted man at some point, you know. I like what uh, a few of you have said about potentially Matt meeting up with, with Tom, because, um, David, there was something that you said about Matt and his need for, to protect his family unit. And it made me think that, in a sense, Tom became part of Matt's family unit on the road and losing him would have been really awful, right? So it was not only the, the fact that he can't quite rem remember what happened to the family, but also the fact that Tom apparently died protecting them. And that Lost line, that thing. line that he gives to Rand just, you know, now seems to have a deeper significance for me where he, where Rand's reminding him, remember Tom said, you know, and he's like, well, Tom's, Tom's dead, isn't he? He's not here. He's not here. And it's this, there's also this grief over the fact that somebody that he'd made a connection with that was helping them get away from the big bad, you know, sacrificed himself to save them. So I think if that was yeah. to happen, that would help heal that wound. And one would presume that fades don't bury their uh, victims. So maybe he's trying to go back and, and take care of that for Tom as well. That's true. Oh, okay. that's a really nice point. Like he helped yeah. bury the Aielman with Tom and now he feels like he needs to also bury Tom. 
Oh, that, but yeah. he may get there and discover that uh, Tom's not there and the family is already buried. So he's going to go look for Tom. I I think you all, if if the if that's not how they wrote the scene, I think that uh, they need to go back and rewrite it and and reshoot it because. Are yeah. you listening, Rafe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I actually want to. I want to take that idea one step further of him arriving while Tom's burying them. I don't oh. know if that would because that's several. Yeah, you that, know, that several time days frame later. is going to be. Yeah, but we don't. We don't know how Tom got there. Like we don't know where Tom's path led him. Oh, true. Tom wasn't necessarily on his path to that farm. Right. But, you know, Tom was at the farm when everything happened. So it seems like he would have, you know, gotten yeah, away he from would, the He would have left and come back months later to, to bury them. Yeah. I think he would have been back but, like the next day. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And I, I certainly think that would uh, put Matt on a trail to find Tom right. at that point. Again, pointing back to the, the family thing. So we're saying that Tom would have, Kind of, if he'd been knocked out by the fade, if we're assuming this, because we're just assuming that he's not dead because we didn't see the body on screen. When he wakes up, he buries the three family members. Or if he's able to get away, you know, he'll go hide and then, you know, lose the fade somehow and then come back the next day, bury the family because he's a decent, decent man. Uh, and he likes and, burying people, as we know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. He's got a calling. <laughs> you know, hobbies are bringing down an entire room at once, burying people and uh, stealing your purse. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a singer songwriter to me. Yeah. Uh, no, but uh, <laughs> he, uh, yeah, yeah, I think he will have done that, and then will have moved on uh, wherever his his quest takes him. But I, 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 I could see I could see Matt rolling up on the farm, seeing the graves, and uh, realizing that Tom's still alive and goes after him. Okay. Um, yeah, and with that, I think we can uh, wrap up our character deep dives. Uh, we got through the other three this episode. Um, and boy, it took us a long way to get through those three. Um, uh, there's a lot to... Lot to go over. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. And uh, we've got uh, some mailbag for us today. So mailbag. Mailbag. That was almost in time. I love it. <laughs> Uh, this is from our friend Stephen. Uh, says, Dear Ruark and the panel, uh, in response to my last email, you told me not to read the books just yet so I wouldn't get any spoilers. Well, he must confess that Steve started reading the books. <laughs> oh. Um, okay. Says, let on me you. explain and hopefully you'll forgive me. So, so we'll, we'll let him explain. My wife read some of the series many years ago and after watching the show with me, wanted to go back and read them again. She's now already on to book four, which I might add is the best book of the series, um, and has com commented many times on how different they are to, to the television series. Uh, 
since starting reading the books, she's asked me a number of times to read them so we can discuss the books and that she doesn't see any big spoilers in book one when I told her what I had said about reading the book. Um, she even said that this podcast would give him more spoilers, which I would like to vehemently disagree with. Yeah, we'll go with that. Vehemently. Yeah, there we go. Um, so for the sake of a happy wife, I started book one, but I won't stop listening to, to y'all either. Um, and I was a, for the sake of a happy wife, yeah, go ahead and read the books. We're, we're, yeah. you know, that, that rule really only applies to, to the, the panel members there. They have all, I didn't even ask them to, but they have all agreed pretty much to say spoiler free through this whole journey. Yes. So that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's who the rule really, really applies to. Right. Um, but I do want to say that uh, um, your your wife is mistaken. There are definitely things out of book one that will be spoilers. Um, you say I, I'm reading in your letter, and you say you're about 120 pages in. Uh, yeah, the the spoilers are still coming. Um, there are there are several things I can think of that still are yet to happen in book one that we know for a fact will be happening in season two of the show. So if you read through book one, you are going to see some scenes that are going to happen in season two for certain. Um, but that being said, probably not that big of a deal. And, you know, if you want to read it so that you can discuss it with your wife, I'm not going to tell you no. that that's a great idea. And I'm never going to tell anybody not to read these books. These books are amazing. Except us. Except except the six panelists. You don't count. I keep you in a shoebox. That that that's that's completely separate. Um, but I I want to continue this letter. Uh, He says I'm 120 pages in, and they still haven't made it out of Emmons Field, the two rivers. It feels like there's heaps left to do before they go. I used to laugh at the lengthy description jokes, but it's all true. It's all true. (laughs) (laughs) And yet you don't notice it when you read it. It's written so well. The lengthy descriptions also seem to come right before something big happens. So I always want to keep reading to find out what happens next. Um, Says you want to thank us for all the episodes we've done on diversity, representation, and inclusion. Uh, as a usually oblivious white male, it's easy co- to completely miss and or not understand anything in this area, but I'm always wanting to learn to be better and more aware, and your discussions taught me a lot. It also makes me love the TV show more, given how many things they've gotten right. Uh, it also goes on to say, by the way, I'm a socially awkward redhead married to a redhead with two redheaded kids, so I feel like I know where you're coming from, Ruark, and yeah, uh, you, you all probably do. Uh, two final things, uh, since this email is getting long, uh, first, I wish we could see video clips of your recording sessions. I'd love to see Ruark squirm when they're being questioned at the, at the end of the two rivers episode. And I can tell you, uh, for some episodes, we have recorded video that we have not done anything with yet. We may do something with that in the future. Um, but I'm, I'm yeah, sorry to disappoint you, Stephen. He doesn't squirm. Ruark does not squirm. <laughs> the poker face is unbelievable. Yeah, me and Simon, on the other hand, like, like that. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a newbie. I know. I know. Okay. Uh, so, second final thing from from uh, Stephen is it's not Wheel of Time related, but I'm curious to hear the panel's thoughts on the upcoming Lord of the Rings Rings of Prime series. Um. 
are you interested? Are you excited? What are your concerns? Uh, he noted that during one of our episodes, uh, most of us didn't seem to be really into Lord of the Rings, uh, but still values our opinions and wants to hear what we, we have to say about it. Uh, so anybody thoughts on the, the rings of power series coming up on, on, uh, Amazon prime. I'm really curious. I'm definitely going to be checking it out. So is this based on the book or is this kind of going off, uh, off the reservation, so to speak? Uh, is, it, is it based on the books or is it, you know, the book? It is based on the history of Middle Earth, but not based on any of the books directly. Okay. Most of what they're doing is going to be created whole cloth. Okay. So a lot of new I characters, understand. not your standard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's going to take place during during the creation of the Rings of Power. So several thousand years before the, the movies. Okay. So prequel. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And some characters when they're younger. Right. Uh, yeah, the elves, elves are elves, really yeah. long lived. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So expect to see young Elrond and and young uh, Galadriel and and mm. all that. I would assume. So I'm excited for the show for two reasons. One, the cast looks amazing. Yeah, I will agree with you on that. Absolutely amazing. They are, I mean, if I wasn't already interested, that would have immediately got me interested. But uh, reason two, which should, maybe should have been reason one, is. Um, my husband is about Tolkien the way I am about Jordan. So he's joined me on my journey. And of course, I'm going to join on his. Okay. I'm a casual lover of Lord of the Rings. I haven't read the books, but I, I do love the movies. So I will probably watch it, but it won't be as intently as some things. Yeah, I'll probably watch it too. I've never read the books. I've seen... One and a half of the movies. I seem to, <laughs> I seem to only catch the, you know, the the first one and then the first half of the second one. That's the only. That's all I've ever seen. So I have the extended edition. That's how much I love the movies. Okay. Okay. And and do watch it once in a while, which is a a tough thing. Okay. Yeah. That, that that's a twelve hour undertaking to see mm -hmm. all three movies. Yeah. That's <laughs> like twenty if you watch the uh, extra credits. Yeah. If, if you watch all the too. extras. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just that is more time than I've ever spent in the world of Lord of the Rings, and that includes watching the uh, the Ralph Bakshi Hobbit movie, which I liked when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, um, it's a classic. It is a classic. It is a classic. I never, I never saw the Lord of the Rings one, but uh, I did uh, see the uh, I did see the Hobbit. Um, yeah. I I am as casual a you know I, I've got a very very casual relationship with with Lord of the Rings. I'll check it out. You know, yeah. We'll see. Uh, Samaria, so any thoughts? Um, well, full disclosure: I've never read or watched anything LOTR. Um, so we'll see. I mean, if I. If I can watch Wheel of Time completely, you know, unadulterated, then why not Lord of the Rings, the prequel? Um, mm. And it's it's weird because at this point, it's not for a lack of not, you know, lack of wanting because I kind of do want to watch Lord of the Rings. But at the same time, I kind of also enjoy, you know, watching people squirm when I say I've never seen any of it. So I <laughs> <laughs> don't want to give that up, to be totally honest. <laughs> the contrarian um, in you i listen if if i get locked into my house again um knock on wood 
because I have to be quarantined away from the general public and I can keep my eyes open, then why not? But, you know, last time I had COVID, you know, I was asleep for 10 days straight. So, yeah, I'll send you like all 30 discs of the extended edition. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not kidding either. Wow. Um. Samari, I was just thinking you're actually like a rare, valuable unicorn like people should <laughs> people should be you know people who want complete you know objective opinion on lord of the rings should be petitioning you to work for them because I have no and it's weird because like harry potter i didn't read or watch until after the fact so i came in on the HP6, so Half-Blood Prince. So that's when I started reading it when that movie was out in theaters. And like pure cultural osmosis, like I knew pretty like all of the highlights of Harry Potter. Um, But Lord of the Rings, it has not happened. Like I have no idea. Like I know who, is it Legolas? Legolas? I know he's an elf (laughs) and I know he's Orlando Bloom. And that is like the extent of it. (laughs) (laughs) It was the Um, meme I saw with... uh... Uh, a picture of a Lego Legolas. Yeah. And then they took the legs off. It says Lego or legless Lego. Legless Lego Legolas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, my answer to that question. Um, I, I, when I was younger, I was a Tolkien fanatic. Uh, the Hobbit was my, my first foray into um, uh, uh, fantasy literature. Uh, when I was very young, still I was in grade school. Um, and uh, the the Lord of the Rings series after that was was you know, it was to me what Wheel of Time to, is to me now. Um, I I really got into the lore, really got into everything, and and when the movies came out, I was really excited about those. But by the time the movies had come out, um, Lord of the Rings had kind of been replaced in my heart by Wheel of Time, so it it's doesn't hold that weight for me anymore. Um, I'm I'm interested to see the series when it comes out. I'm not. I, I haven't really been looking into it at all or you know, I've seen I've seen the the character sheets that, that kind of came out that were brilliant, like uh Simo was saying. Uh but beyond that I really know very little about it. Um but I'm thinking that more likely than not, we will probably be watching and reacting to those episodes on this show because we know for a fact that while that show is airing, uh the Wheel of Time will not be. So uh, I think it, it it might be worth reacting to just to just to see what it's all about. Um, so so look for that uh, later this summer, I think. Um, and with that, that is our our mailbag for this week. Uh, if you want to submit for mailbag, you can send that to Watch Party W O T. That's Watch Party Watt at gmail dot com, um, and we will read that on the air and answer any of your questions or not answer if we decide not to. Um, and, uh, we also want to say, uh, get out there and, and leave us some reviews on, on your podcatcher app of choice. Uh, we want to say thank you to headache in Portland for their awesome review that they left for us on, on, uh, Apple podcasts. That was a really, really awesome review. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, and with that. We want to say thank you for joining us uh, and a big, huge thank you to Michael and Jen out at the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you, Michael and Jen. Secret Island. Thank you, too. Um, And a final question for the panel. 
Uh, you are a character on Mr. Loyal's Neighborhood. <laughs> what character are you? Uh, so I, I've, I've always associated with Daniel Tiger more than any of the other characters. I know a little bit too much about this as I kind of wanted to go into puppetry before I went into uh, acting and voiceover. Um, but Daniel Tiger was always the character I associated with most, but from my youth. Like, I would feel like I'm more Daniel Tiger grown up. Um, so to put that in Loyal's neighborhood, um, I would imagine that there would be a character who would be, uh, it wouldn't be Tom. It would, uh, so I like, you know, avoiding my, my answer for favorite character, but it would probably be more along the lines of, um, maybe Matt, um, in the neighborhood in the efforts to kind of still trying to understand everything, still trying to protect those smaller than him, even though Daniel's one of the smaller characters. Uh, so I, it might be Matt. It might be Matt in, in Mr. Loyal's neighborhood. I would be Matt, uh, Matt, you tiger. Matt in the role of Daniel tiger. Okay. Yes. To, 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 to get that long tiger story down to a short tail. <laughs> I haven't seen Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in decades, but there was a witch character. So I'm going to lay claim to her because she dresses in black and she has a funky hat. I, I, I want to say Henrietta or, or was Henrietta the cat? I think Henrietta was the cat. I think she might have uh, dressed yeah. as a witch at one point. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a tough one. I want to say Mr. McFeely just because that's the one that I can remember. Uh. <laughs> What are you delivering to uh, Loyal's house? Whatever it is, I'm doing it slowly because he doesn't seem to mind. <laughs> <laughs> It'd have to be books. Definitely Probably, books. yeah. yeah. So I, asked, I had to ask my fellow panelists to um, help me out with this, being uh, the Brit who hasn't seen any episodes but seen some clips on social media. And I asked... Which character is the most like Nynaeve and Days Conga combined? And uh, apparently Lady Elaine. And I had a quick look. And uh, Lady Elaine is opinionated, eccentric, and often stirs up trouble. But she's also the only one who stands up to King Friday the 13th's unreasonable demands. I'll take her. Good choice. <laughs> Good choice. Good choice. She lives in a merry-go-round too, so there is that. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Additional fun. I remember there was this one character who had a bookstore that was also a toy store. And that's who I would be um, when I was like itty bitty. My dad used to pick me up from after school and we'd go to the library. And that would be like a playground for me because I was that kind of child. Um, and there was also this toy store growing up. It kind of disappeared into, you know, thin air, but it was called Zany Brainy. And it was a toy store for little dorks and nerds and geeks where <laughs> every toy in there was educational in some way. So, you know, I used to have a field day. I, I like very rarely got anything out that store, but just like being able to be in that store and like play with all the displays because they used to like have a sample out for every single thing just about and oh, you get awesome. to play with it and i my dad would let me spend hours in this store and i was a very easy child to please so um <laughs> I, I was and so that's what that's what i would be i would be that guy in the neighborhood with the really cool store that i just let the kids run wild in and that would also be fun for me because then i could play with the toys and read the books too without being weird 
That's awesome. <laughs> I am the way gate that goes ding, 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 ding. <laughs> 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 <laughs>